Okay, good to see everyone here today. Wasn't sure how many folks would be around for this part of the weekend, and in truth, I'm only around for this part of the weekend, literally. When we're done here, I get in my car with Gable, and we head in an eastward direction where we will meet up with uh, the rest of the family in Virginia. So I've got a couple days of driving ahead of me, but I really wanted to be here for this service because the way July is working out, I'm going to be gone a lot of this month. So if I wasn't going to be here today, then the only Sabbath I would be here to speak would be the 15th. And I didn't want to just be one out of five. So, so I'm here this Sabbath. Uh, I'll be gone next Sabbath, and Vanessa will be our speaker next week. She's hiding upstairs right now, but uh, I'm looking forward to that, and we'll be tuning in to see that. Uh, And then I'm here the 15th, and then Tony Hunter will be our speaker on the 22nd, and I'm actually still working on the 29th, so I can't tell you exactly what that's going to be yet, but uh, one of you is going to come through and be the hero that day, and it'll be wonderful. And then I'll be back on August 5, and we'll get back into uh, more of a regular uh, schedule after that. But the text you heard this morning, I'm actually not going to be able to cover the whole thing today. When I originally set out today to do this message, I entitled it Old and New. But after I got into it and working on it, I thought, okay, no, this isn't going to work because this is going to take way too long. So I said, we're going to have to do Old and New Part 1 and Old and New Part 2. So Part 2 will be on uh, July 15, something won't be here next Sabbath. But So this is Old and New Part 1. And we're just going to take on the first part of this passage because as I got into it, what I really wanted to say took so much to set up, there was no time to actually get to that other part. So that'll be for the 15th. Today, we're just going to focus on the first part of this verse, old and new. And in one sense, what you just saw with the uh, story about the chickens and coming out of the egg is very relevant to this because the baby chick for 21 days is exactly where it should be when it's in the egg. But by day 25, it needs to have moved on, right? And that can be true about us as well. So let's pray, and let's get started here. Father in heaven, we pray your Holy Spirit will come and be with us today. We'll speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, teach us, lead us, help us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing today on this uh, series we've been doing in the book of Luke. And the, the general series title is... What do you believe about Jesus? Or at least that's the key question. What do you believe about Jesus? Because what you believe matters. But now let me, let me throw a little something onto that question. Have your beliefs about Jesus changed at all since you first started believing. And, just a follow-up to that, if it has, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's sort of a question that defies an easy answer. 
As I reflected on this from my own life, from my own experience, I had to admit that for me, much has been gained in my understanding from my earliest days of committed faith. And, and you know, you, so how that story played out for you, I don't know exactly. I'll tell you how it played out for me. I grew up as a child of the church. I was, I was a reasonably good child of the church. But there comes that point in your life where you have to own your faith. It can no longer be the church I grew up in. It has to be a decision that you make that not only is this the faith I was raised with, this is actually the faith I embrace. And that journey can be different for different ones of us and can take place at a different time and a different place. For me, it really formulated over about a 10-year span from the time I started at the University of Tennessee to the point where I quit my job and went to seminary to study to be a pastor. And it really was over that span, over that course of time, that I made my own decision about my own beliefs as an adult, what I would believe, how I would live, what I would do. And when I think back on those days, there were some, there were some really special and precious realities about that time, and about the way I believed, and about, uh, about my understandings of God, and of Jesus, and of, of the whole purpose. But there are also some things that that I, in my faith journey, have grown beyond. And some of those understandings have been very important and very good. But then there's also a part of me that thinks there probably are some things that have been lost as well in that journey. But what's tricky about it is which of those things that have been lost should have really been hung on to? And which of those things that were lost were really just a part of the reality of growth and maturity in faith? So we think about baptism. Baptism is, is the beginning of the life of faith. I guess in truth it actually begins before that. It, it, but it comes to that moment and it's a marker. And we've had some baptisms here recently, some young people... It is a point in your faith walk and experience where you need to at least have a pretty good foundational understanding of what you believe. This is the reason we invest in taking time to do Bible studies, and I appreciate the work of Pastor Jay to do that with so many in this community, to bring them along to lay down that foundational level of faith and understanding. And he absolutely deserves to have a chicken named after him. I'm convinced of it. His work here was worth that. So that is definitely a win. But it lays down that foundational layer. But here's the thing. No one stays where they started. Or at least you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to spend more than 21 days in the egg. You're supposed to move on. And maybe you look pretty funny when you first come out of the egg. But over time, 
See, this is what the faith experience. It's called the walk of faith, not the stand of faith. Although even as I, as I say that, you realize even within the metaphor there's complications because sometimes you have to take a stand of faith. But yet at the same time, it is a walk of faith. It is an experience. But it can be a confusing experience to the extent that even the metaphors are confusing. Is it a walk or is it a stand? I guess it depends on the day, doesn't it? One of the constant battles is the push and pull between learning what one should do as a believer versus coming to mistake behavior for faith or lack of behaviors for lack of faith. See, because as you walk, as you grow, as you learn, you learn in your walk of faith that there are certain behaviors consistent with your belief. But the trap is to confuse the behaviors for the faith. They come along with it, but sometimes we get confused. And it was into this milieu, this reality of, of behaviors and faith that Jesus was thrust in the short story we're considering for today. And once again, the answer he gives doesn't please everyone. Does his answer please you? Luke chapter 5 Verse 33, we're going to be primarily there, but we're going to jump to a couple other places. So if you want to take one of those Bibles in front of you, you can. Luke chapter 5, verse 33, we find these words. And they said to him, him here being Jesus, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So the rebuke here is implied in the statement. You guys just aren't very holy. Do you hear the rebuke there? He's saying, hey, what's going on here? The disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast and pray, but you guys eat and drink. And here you are going around acting like you're something important, and you're not behaving like holy people. So to get a context here, we need to try to identify who the they are that said this. Luke tells us, they said to him. So in order to try to get a handle on that, we need to understand where this story falls. So this story comes hot on the heels of what we considered last Sabbath, though there is absolutely nothing specific that ties this story to the one before. There's no specific mention that says at the same time or in the same place or anything like that. But in both Matthew, 5, in Matthew 9, Luke 2, sorry, Matthew 9, Mark 2, and Luke 5, these stories come in the exact same form. In each case, this story falls immediately after the same one before. And the previous story was what we talked about last Sabbath, and that was the calling of Matthew to be a disciple 
And then Jesus sitting down to eat with tax collectors and sinners. That's what they're called. Which is an event that brings out some amazing words from Jesus, which I'm going to read that again to give us the context from last Sabbath. Only this time, I'm going to read it out of the book of Matthew, because Matthew includes some highly significant words. And I, I can't help but wonder if, in fact, Matthew remembered these words particularly, because he's the one that really is at the center of this whole event. It's his calling to be a disciple. He's the one that invited the people over, and he adds a line. So I'm going to read it in Matthew chapter 9, verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Sounds like a nice time. But as we talked about last Sabbath, you're not supposed to have a nice time with bad people, right? Or at least that was the concern. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then this is the verse that's added. This one doesn't show up in Luke, doesn't show up in Mark. But this is the verse, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is actually quoting here. Jesus' words in verse 13 are actually from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And his instruction to the Pharisees that day is to go back to Scripture, because at that point, that's what Scripture was, the Old Testament. Go back to Scripture and figure out what God is actually trying to achieve. Though I presume when he said this, he was pretty sure they weren't going to do it. But we should probably do it. Because we should try to understand that God has always desired to show us mercy far more than he has desired to deal with our belligerent disobedience followed by some sort of sacrifice we make in a presumed effort to appease him. God is going for something more than that. But here's the reality about legalistic religion. Legalistic religion has very deep roots, and those roots tend to sink down especially deep into the hearts of two kinds of people. One kind are the fearful, who are so afraid, so afraid that God doesn't love them, so afraid that they won't be accepted, that they fall into this trap. And, and what happens is they are continually feeling this sense of condemnation and despair that comes from the very thing that is supposed to be bringing them hope and deliverance. Faith in God is supposed to bring you hope and deliverance, not condemnation and despair. But when you get caught on this road that God is demanding and he demands these things of me and therefore I must make sacrifice to him, 
you fall into this trap and Jesus is trying to say, whoa, 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 stop. God desires mercy more than sacrifice. Go and learn what this means, he says. But then there's another group that this legalistic religion finds deep roots with, and that is the ones who are actually seeking power and control. And too often this happens in the church because we're talking about the things of God here. We're talking about eternal life here. And, and you get certain people into positions of leadership and authority who sense that within that, the ability to threaten your eternal salvation comes the opportunity for great power. And you can see how this happened within the church after the days of the disciples and probably to some degree even in their days because you had the Judaizers who were showing up and saying, what you're doing is not enough. You also need to do this if you're going to be saved. And the fearful said, uh-oh, we better do what they said. And power begins to grow through that kind of a thing. And you can see how in the early church, over time, it grew into this controlling reality where the church said to you, in order for you to have forgiveness, you must come to us and confess. And if you misbehave, we'll cut you off and God won't love you anymore. Do you see the temptation? It can still happen to us today. And ironically, it can happen to us even when we think we have good motives. Because wouldn't it be good if everybody would obey and do what they were told? Especially if I'm the one telling? You see the traps, right? And so legalistic religion takes root in us. But they go against the words of Jesus. Who says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so then, this leads well into what is about to come next. So let's go back to our original, our original verse here, Luke 5, 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, if all you had was Luke, we'd be unclear about who exactly is the they that are saying this though both Matthew and Mark provide a few more details. And given that these words occur immediately after Jesus is enjoying the meal at Matthew's house, and given the fact that the question to Jesus starts with the subject of food, it is in the context of seeing Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners that they mention they don't fast. It makes sense. I think it's plausible that this event does indeed happen in context of what took place just before where they're questioning Jesus' choices and behavior and implying that Jesus and his disciples just aren't as holy as the other leaders. In the book of Luke, this story starts with, they said to him, in Matthew it goes like this, and this is significant, the disciples of John came to him saying, so in Matthew, the ones asking this question are identified as disciples of John the Baptist. In the book of Mark, it goes like this. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, 
and people came and said to him. So if we take all of these introductions to who's talking here, we can glean from this that for sure it was some of John the Baptist's disciples who were questioning Jesus that day, and perhaps in an ironic twist of reality, because this happens to us sometimes, on this particular day, the disciples of John found themselves in cahoots with the disciples of the Pharisees. Which is odd, because you remember what John the Baptist called the Pharisees, right? He said, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Yet Jesus was sometimes so hard to understand, and and so not what people were expecting. Maybe that's the better way to say it. Maybe if you had just reacted to him when he came to you, he wouldn't be that hard to understand. But when he went against everything you were expecting, he became so hard to understand that both the Pharisees and the disciples of John found themselves in agreement that what Jesus was doing was probably not right. Now, as we consider this, I want to start our consideration on this today with this subject of fasting because you could get the wrong idea here. You could get the idea that that, uh, John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting and, and they just shouldn't do it at all. It's just dumb because here's Jesus and his disciples and they're eating. So I want to start out on this subject of fasting for just a second and say this. Fasting is not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand the passage. Jesus is not saying fasting is a bad thing. And let me just give you a little context from from Alicia's and my own experience. She and I both have uh, some interesting history with fasting where we believed God had called us to fast. For Alicia, it was a weekly Wednesday fast that would last until sundown. And she did this for a decade or more. And, and what she was doing, it was a day of fasting and prayer for our kids. And that was an awesome thing for her to do. So every Wednesday, she would fast until sundown. And she did this for years. For me, it was a different thing. For me, it was a yearly event that coincided with the end of the series I would do every fall, whatever that series happened to be, that always ran right up until just before the week of Thanksgiving or so. And I would, the last week of the series, do a week-long fast. I was younger then. I could do those things. But I would do a week-long fast, and it was an amazing experience. Year after year, I did this when I was in Marietta. I did this when I was at Forest Lake. For a lot of years, I would do that, and it was an amazing experience. One year, I tried to do two weeks, and that was really dumb. And I realized that that was me testing edges, not God making a call on my life. But anyway, so so the idea here was this idea of seasons of fasting, seasons of feasting, and I liked it. It worked really well for me because I would I would do this fast for a week in November, and then we would enter into the season of feasting that starts with Thanksgiving and goes through Christmas and New Year's. And it was a very important time in my life, and, and the Lord worked in my life in those times, and, and it was very impactful. And I also want to say to you that I would recommend to you, if you sense the Lord calling you to a season of fasting, you figure it out. You understand what He's saying to you. And we could talk more about that another time if you want. 
But the problem with fasting is that it can become a loathsome sacrifice in God's eyes when we do it with the wrong spirit or for the wrong reason. And if you want the perfect example of it, it's Isaiah chapter 58. And it reads like this, Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. And now here you go, verse 3. Why have we fasted and you have, not, and you have seen it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? So do you see what's going on here? They were doing these routine fasts. But they were complaining, hey, we're making the sacrifice. Why are you not delivering on your side? It had become transactional. It was no longer a spiritual experience. The last part of verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? So what he's saying, what Isaiah is saying to the people is, you're going through the motions, but your heart is not in this. And God is not going to honor it just because you're pretending just because you're suffering for a little while, that doesn't impress God. The sacrifices of God are a, are a contrite spirit. It's more important what's going on on the inside. Now, it would be really easy for us to get sidetracked here and spend the rest of the time in Isaiah 58, but, but we're going to avoid that today. Suffice it to say, and if you read the rest of the chapter, you'll see what God has in mind for fasting but let's get back to our context Luke chapter 5 verse 33 and they said to him the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink again the rebuke is implied in the statement you guys just aren't very holy and particularly if you remember the eating and drinking that the disciples and Jesus have been doing is not just problematic because they're not fasting, it's problematic because of who they're eating and drinking with. And this brings up an interesting point. Because certainly, Jesus was doing things that John the Baptist never did. For John traveled a road of religious austerity. He lived in the wilderness, away from the dissipation of the cities. He ate simple foods. He wore simple clothes. John didn't come to you unless you were Herod and you were being rebuked. You went out to John. Remember, it specifically says that. John was in the wilderness and the people were going out to him. But Jesus was different. 
Jesus walked among the people. Jesus touched lepers. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. We haven't gotten to any of those stories yet. Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, and this is just the beginning of his scandalous behaviors. He did things very differently from John. And it's a contrast that is well pointed out by Jesus himself in an interesting aside that he took one time. And this is from Luke chapter 7, verse 31. And Jesus talking, he says, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. So even Jesus recognized the difference between how John had done things and how he was doing things. Now, we're not going to spend any more time on this from chapter 7 because, Lord willing, maybe this series will make it all the way to chapter 7 one day. But, but for now, just note a couple things here. First, it seems not everyone has the same calling when it comes to lifestyle. Well, that's a tough one, right? Shouldn't there be one rule for everybody? Well, there was a rule for John, and there was a rule for Jesus. And they were so different, Jesus himself pointed it out. Can we wrap our minds around the notion that God might in fact call some people to very austere living, but not necessarily everyone? Is that even fair? Is God allowed to have one rule over here and a a different rule over there? Well, this is a hard one for a people who came out of the concept of Reformation. But it does seem within the Bible story itself that there are different seasons and different callings in different seasons. So, can he do that? Is it possible that not every one of us has the same calling to the same lifestyle? And the second point here to note from this, because he said, John came like this and you hated him, and I'm doing this and you hate me. So, so the second point, people who want to not like you will always be able to find a reason not to like you. So... Don't waste so much time trying to please them, especially if what they want from you is contrary to what God has called you to do. Don't get caught in that trap. But again now, let's reset. Let's go back to Luke 5, verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. 
Now, presumably, we would want to put the disciples of John on the good guy list. And perhaps, maybe even likely, they were fasting because that's what John taught them to do. And maybe that was what they were supposed to do, or at least were supposed to do for a bit longer. And maybe they're even supposed to do that again someday, but life is about seasons and mandates indeed even the righteous acts of one season may in fact be the exact opposite in the next this idea is implied in Jesus response so I read you verse 33 several times but here's what Jesus says back verse 34 and Jesus said to them can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? That's Jesus' answer. The disciples of John, the disciples of the Pharisees fast. You guys eat and drink. And Jesus says, right. Because it would be wrong to fast when you're with the bridegroom. Now that doesn't mean fasting is wrong. It just means fasting at the wrong time is wrong. The saying is poignant in itself. Though given context, these words had to be even more poignant for John's disciples. For, for John himself, John the Baptist, one time in their hearing said this. John chapter 3, verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And, the, and they came to John, they came to John the Baptist, and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, meaning Jesus, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. So John the Baptist's disciples were getting a little jealous of the fact that everybody was abandoning John and going to Jesus. John answered, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, I must decrease. Craziest, one of the craziest stories in the whole Bible. Usually the story is, my life was a mess, I met Jesus and everything came together. The story of John is the exact opposite. John's got this incredible, powerful ministry, and he's making this huge difference. He meets Jesus, and everything falls apart, and he dies in prison. The callings are not the same. God calls each of us to our own journey, and we need to not compare it. But John himself here is using this language. He says, I'm not the one. But the one who is coming is the bridegroom. And rejoice when you hear his voice. John himself identifies Jesus as the bridegroom. And, and says, and, and now Jesus is saying, it would be wrong to fast while you're with the bridegroom. This had to really do a number on their mind. But what I hear Jesus saying is this. He's saying to John's disciples, a new 
season is here. But now Jesus is going to add some sobering words to this as well. So verse 34, we'll read it again. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? But now verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So let's think about this for a minute. If John represented a season of soul-searching and repentance, for he says, repent, this was his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. If John's ministry represented a season of soul-searching and repentance, Jesus has now come representing a season of healing and deliverance. And while fasting goes along with repentance, feasting goes along with healing and deliverance. But note Jesus' words. It's not just feasting from here on out. Jesus does not just imply there's hard times coming. Jesus guarantees there's hard times coming. He says the bridegroom will be taken away, and they'll fast that day. Oh boy, and did they. But that's a, a later story. And indeed, this passage goes on. You heard the rest of the passage, and it, it becomes very interesting, the idea of the, the, the patch and the the old cloth and the unshrunk cloth and the, and the wineskins and the old wineskins and the new wineskins. And that's what we need to get to. But, but I think we've gone about far enough for today. We'll get to that. But for today, we need to try to wrap it up with what we've done. So band, you can come back up here. Instead, let's close with this. Know your season. Do you know what season you're living in right now? Know your season. What season are you in today? And do the assumptions that got you through the last season still apply to your current reality? Let's go back to the Let's go back to the story, the children's story. You're a, you're a baby chick in your egg, and there's a certain number of assumptions you're living with, and one of them is, don't go outside this egg. Don't you dare go outside this egg. You won't survive. And that is absolutely true. Until the day it isn't. Right? See, this is what's dangerous about rules. Because they can be absolutely true in one season. And absolutely wrong in the next. Because if the chick never breaks out of the egg, it never lives. It never goes on. So you got to know your season. Don't touch lepers. Wait, now we touch lepers? Don't waste time fishing with nets during the day. Wait, if Jesus says fish with nets during the day, do it. Don't eat with tax collectors and sinners. Wait, now we eat with tax collectors and sinners? Don't let Gentiles into holy places. Wait, now we let Gentiles be leaders in the church? Different seasons. Do you?
know what season you're in? Or are you still trying to navigate today with yesterday's rules and yesterday's tools? So what do you believe about Jesus? Now don't get confused here. It's not God that is changing. See, this is what it was interesting about what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He said, go back. You've misunderstood the scriptures. Go back and figure it out. God is more than you think. It's not God that's changing. If I look at my own story from where I started in, in this journey that has brought me to this day, as I've learned and grown through those years, God hasn't changed a bit. But I sure have. I've been through lots of seasons. And in each one, I gained new appreciations and understandings. And those assumptions and realities that I lived by when I was 30 don't work now that I'm 58. I can't live there honestly anymore. God stays the same. But we change. And for the record, we're supposed to change. We're supposed to be living and learning and growing in grace and truth. More patient, more kind, more loving, more and more like Jesus. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under heaven. We've got some significant seasons in this church right now. Japheth, Jonah, Joshua, you guys are in a season. It's a season of sorrow and mourning, and, and we mourn with them in this season, especially when we are with them, and when they are with us. But Mark and Courtney, you're in a season season of a new life and we rejoice with you in your season we're all in a season and we need to live that season and let God live in us in that season there are seasons of fasting and seasons of feasting we won't always be in the same season together but we all need to be faithful to the season we are in while joining each other in their seasons when we can. And through it all, we can have this singular confidence. No matter what our season, Jesus will make a way. Just don't let go of the faith. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep walking. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus.